if you're anything like me or David Schiffman, you would have had a period in your life when you're obsessed with sharks. That is why today's episode, where I get to speak to the marine conservation biologist studying sharks, David Schiffman, also found on most social medias at Why Sharks Matter, was an enormous honor and pleasure. I got to learn so much from someone who is actually out there in the field as well as doing research and making sure that science backs policy. Today we talked a little bit about sharks and how to identify sharks, what are the biggest threats facing sharks in our world, about how fish and chips shops serve sharks under alternative names, as well as a course coming up in March and June that you can get involved in if you want to go to Florida, uh, shark culls, shark attacks, the probability of you being attacked by a shark, as well as why sharks are such an important species in our environment. So if you are interested in all things sharks, make sure to stay tuned to this podcast episode. David also shares with us what you can do to help sharks and protect them in their natural environment because we need these apex predators. And even though they sometimes appear scary with teeth, they are one of the most vital parts of the ocean ecosystem. As always, it would mean the world to me if you could leave this podcast a review or a comment on any platform that you're listening to this on, as well as join the Ocean Love and Tribe at the Ocean Pancake Podcast um, Facebook group. If there's anyone you want to hear me interview, please send me an email at oceanpancakepodcast at gmail.com or shoot me a message on Vegan Diver Cat on YouTube or Instagram. Follow me on all the platforms and yeah, join the tribe, join the family because together we can make a difference. Every day there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean, whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution. If the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. Perfect. Love talking about sharks. So let's get started at the very beginning. What made you fall in love with the ocean and begin studying sharks? So I grew up in Pittsburgh, which is pretty far from the ocean. Uh, But I actually know a lot of marine biologists who grew up in the Midwestern U.S. Uh, There's just something about the ocean that appealed to us for a long time. And sharks specifically, I feel like most kids go through a shark thing or a dinosaur thing. Yeah. And I actually had both of those and had to pick. And I decided I'd rather spend my days on a boat in the Caribbean than in the dusty deserts of Montana digging up rocks. Uh, when I started to learn about the conservation aspects of sharks, the idea of using science to help prevent extinction uh, appealed to me. So I've wanted to do this as long as my family can remember. And my parents have always supported this dream of mine, even though I suspect when I was younger, they thought I would grow out of it. Uh, never did, and at this point, the whole family's come out on the research vessel with me tagging sharks, which is a lot of fun. Oh, um, yeah, I, I, 
I know most people have had that shark face for sure. I, I had it, but I didn't think that I could actually study marine biology, so I decided to go down a different route. But mm -hmm. you know, uh, now I'm back, back uh, talking about sharks, so <laughs> it's all good. Perfect. Uh, what do you see as the biggest challenge facing the sharks? Well, the, so sharks as a group, sharks and their relatives, the skates, the rays, and the chimeras, are some of the most threatened vertebrate animals in the world. Uh, tw about 24% of them, as of the latest count, which is about to be updated, and I don't know what the new numbers are yet, but they're worse, uh, are estimated or assessed as threatened with extinction, according to the IUCN Red List, which is an international team of scientific experts. So in, amphibians are worse off, and that's about it. Uh, and the single largest threat facing sharks as a group is unsustainable overfishing. That doesn't mean that there's no such thing as sustainable fishing, but unsustainable overfishing is common and is the biggest threat facing sharks as a group. For some species of sharks, the biggest threat is habitat destruction. For some species of sharks, the biggest threats are other things, but for sharks as a group, Humans, the problem they're facing is humans are killing too many of them. Uh, and their numbers just cannot replenish as quickly as something like a tuna, which reproduces by spawning can. Sharks have internal fertilization and they have what's called a case-selected life history, which means they have relatively few young, relatively infrequently, relatively late in life. Uh, so something like a tuna can be reproductively mature relatively quickly and they can spawn and have these giant clouds of eggs and sperm. If you've ever been in the water during a spawning event, it is pretty gross. Uh, it is noticeable what's happening. But sharks have internal fertilization. If you would see shark mating, you would know what you were looking at. And uh, it, the end result of that is that they just cannot support heavy fishing pressure because their populations don't bounce back. So what fishing pressure is actually on the sharks? Is it targeted fishing or is it mostly bycatch? So it's a mix of both and there's also sort of a weird in-between where they're, they're bycatch, they're unintentional catch, but they're still used and sold and to some extent almost targeted. Uh, there are many shark species that are sold for their fins uh, that, that's used to make a traditional Southeast Asian delicacy called shark fin soup. And that's the only threat that a lot of people have heard of, but it's really not the only threat or the biggest threat. Uh, the shark meat trade is significant and growing, and that's something that you never seem to hear about. Uh, and I have actually encountered environmental activists uh, here in the United States who are repulsed by a bowl of shark fin soup, but they see a mako shark steak at the, at the grocery store or supermarket, and they think, no, that's fine, that's how normal people eat fish. And that is not only scientifically problematic, but it's also super racist. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of problems with public perception of shark conservation, and that's the sort of stuff I'm working on now. But it's a mix of target catch for meat and fins, as well as bycatch, often in the tuna and billfish fisheries, uh, long lines, and also there are some some trawl fisheries catch them in Australia. The gummy sharks are caught by trawl, I think. Um, and that's, that's actually a relatively well-managed fishery. Yeah, I know here in Australia, uh, maybe my third or fourth year, one of my friends said, hey, did you know that flake at the fish and chip shops is yeah. shark? And I remember being horrified because there were countless times that I actually ordered flake 
and mm-hmm. you know I thought it was just some weird sea fish but turns out it was shark and I feel like there is definitely a lack of education and you know yeah. consider that normal and acceptable while shark fin soup as you said people are horrified by it. In, in the UK they sell shark as a rock salmon uh, that's not a thing there's no rock salmon you cannot go to an aquarium and say, show me a rock salmon. You cannot look in an ichthyology textbook and look up a rock salmon. Uh, the, the, the seafood industry is, is actually, there's a lot of pretty amusing examples of this, of relabeling things uh, to make them sound more palatable. Uh, do you have orange roughy at nice seafood restaurants in Australia? That's like an upscale fish uh, called an orange roughy. We used to call them slime heads. But... For some reason, uh, those don't sell at fancy seafood restaurants. So orange roughy was invented, even though the species already existed. Well, uh, yeah, I didn't so know. Th- there's a lot of that stuff. We also have issues in the United States with uh, suspiciously cheap fried scallops mm-hmm. are usually stingray or skate meat that they just take like a circular cookie cutter, and cut round chunks out and they bread it and fry it and they say, look, it's scallops. I... Yeah, didn't even know that was happening. Because I don't think most people eat rays in general, but that's why. They are uh, not a, a skate is commonly eaten. Uh, it's, it's very common in the Koreas. It's very common in France. It's very common in Central and South America to eat skate. And I have seen it at some seafood restaurants in the U.S., but less commonly. For the people who don't know, can you tell us a quick difference between sharks, skates, and rays? Sure. So if so, uh, the difference between skates and rays is subtle and more morphological. If you think they're, they're sometimes called, the, the skate and ray biologists hate this, but sometimes that group is called the flat sharks. Because uh, they, are, they are, so sharks and their relatives, the, the cartilaginous fishes, are distinguished from all the other fish by their skeleton mostly. So sharks and their relatives have this skeleton that's made entirely out of cartilage. Whereas something like a bass or a barramundi or a tuna has a bone skeleton. So we have both cartilage and bone. If you pick a point on your wrist about halfway, or on your arm about halfway between your wrist and your elbow, and you try to bend it, you should find that you can't. If you can, that's a problem. Uh, That's bone. It's relatively strong, but it's also inflexible. You crinkle your nose or crinkle your ears. That's cartilage. And sharks' entire bodies are made out of that. Uh, along with the skates, rays, and chimeras. So that's the main difference between those group, those uh, fishes and the other fishes. Uh, between sharks, skates, uh, rays, and chimeras, it's a difference of body plan. Uh, and it gets taxonomic and morphologic and boring pretty quickly. But most people can picture a stingray. Skates are, you can think of them as, they're, they're very similar to, to stingrays. Uh, I know I was diving out on the east coast of Australia and I saw some guitar sharks. Um, yeah. And I looked into um, the book trying to identify the species. I got it confused with the shovel nose ray, and there seemed, whenever I Googled it, there was a big overlap with the two creatures, and in general... Yeah, so th- those are rays. Uh, guitar, the guitar fish are rays, but okay. they're shark-like rays, So and sawfish are also shark-like rays. It gets confusing very quickly. Uh, so you, a lot of times you hear uh, about sharks and their relatives, or the cartilaginous fishes, or the chondrichthyan fishes, or the elasmobranch fishes, depending on. Those actually all mean different things because, all, of course, none of this can be easy, but that's generally what we're talking about. Fair enough. And 
So what does your day look like as a marine conservation biologist working with sharks? The most common thing I do these days is answer emails, uh, which is true of many careers. But uh, right now I live and work in Washington, DC. I am a postdoc at Arizona State University, uh, which is pretty far from Washington, DC, but many universities have a DC branch office. And I also run a scientific and environmental consulting firm here, where I work with the Washington, DC environmental nonprofit community, trying to help them to better do science and help them better uh, use science in support of their policy goals. I also, I do less of this than I'd like, but I get to spend time out on boats tagging sharks and taking biological samples and measurements from sharks. And that's, uh, the, uh, these days, uh, those are with old collaborations with graduate school friends, uh, as well as some new projects I'm getting started on. Oh, I'm actually teaching a class uh, with them that is still, I don't know when this will air, but there's still spots available now if any of your followers are in the US or can get here, I'm teaching a class on ocean science communication that will be held on a research vessel in Florida. People will live and eat on the research vessel and they'll participate in this ongoing uh, shark research as well as learn shark science and the principles of scientific writing for the public and communication and how to use social media. Uh, and that's through a group called Field School, which is getintothefield.com. Uh, but that's, that's I don't get into the field as much as I'd like these days, but I do enjoy it whenever I can and I jump at every chance. But a lot of what I'm doing is writing and surveying people. I do a lot of the human dimensions of shark conservation these days, which is talking to humans about sharks, trying to figure out what they know about sharks, what they think about sharks, where they learn what they know when it's wrong, uh, with the goal of trying to better communicate with stakeholder groups in the future. And I also do uh, the, a lot more of the policy side that I used to, trying to translate science into science-based rules and regulations and laws to better protect these animals. While we're on the topic of using science in support of policy, uh, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask about your expert opinion about what's happening in Australia in terms of the shark culls. Um, yes. Which we're seeing in W, as well as Queensland with the drum lines and shark nets. Yeah, so those are, as I understand it, somewhat different situations. The WA one I'm more familiar with, um, and that was in response to some unfortunate fatal shark bites, uh, there was a call to do something. And the governor or the premier of WA wanted to be seen as visibly doing something. So they set up a system to just kill large sharks uh, and make the beaches safer because there won't be sharks nearby. Uh, the problem with that is, first of all, these are these are threatened protected species that ha are ecologically important, but also that doesn't actually make the beaches safer unless you kill all of them, uh, because these are highly migratory animals. Uh, tiger sharks can swim thousands of kilometers in a year. Great white sharks can swim more than that. Uh, so even if you do kill all the sharks in WA waters, which they're not really even trying to do, it's not in, in a week you could have a whole new population. So these are species of concern globally as well as throughout Australia. So we shouldn't be killing them for political stunts. Uh, it's also important to note here that any human injury or any human death is a tragedy. And I'm, I'm sorry for the, the family members of the people who were lost in these fights, but the, the relative risk of these incidents at the cost benefit of having sharks around has to be kept in mind. Uh, I, I don't have these statistics for Australia, but for the US, 
where we have more shark bites than in Australia, you are something like a million times more likely to die of a heart attack than a shark attack. Um, more, more than 50,000 Americans uh, in a typical year die in car accidents, and a typical year one is killed by a shark, and you don't hear anyone talking about taking all the cars off the road. Uh, so it's, people are very bad at understanding relative risk. A human psychologically just can't do it. We, we were going on a vacation a few years ago, and my mom was driving home and heard on news radio uh, about a terrorist incident where we were going on vacation in a few months and started texting me about it while she was driving on the highway because she was scared of that. So people are just, in general, not very good at understanding the relative risk. But these shark bites, when they happen, they're world news, or they're breaking news around the world. Uh, there was an amazing study uh, done by a colleague of mine at the University of Sydney, Christopher Neff, uh, that found 38% of all reported shark attacks in Australian media involved in an incident where the shark did not physically touch the human. It swam near them in a way that they interpreted as menacing. But that gets reported as a shark attack, and you hear a shark attack, you picture Jaws, you picture a bloodthirsty, malicious, monstrous killing machine stalking the coast because it's bad. Um, and people want action. And the, the the inflammatory and inaccurate media coverage is really problematic with this because it inspires, it puts public pressure on political leaders to do something, even if what they're doing doesn't actually make anyone safer and causes ecological harm. Definitely. I think the statistics show that about 82% of Australians are against the calls and against um, shark nets and all those things in general. However, I feel it's, there's also some fear in terms from the political aspect. If you are the politician who removes the culls or the drum lines or the nets. And, and then the next person that gets bit is on you. Yeah. Uh, is the perception. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I'm not a politician uh, for a good reason. I would be <laughs> terrible at it, but I also wouldn't like it because of that. Uh, that it's not just about facts, but you have to balance public opinion. Uh, but a skillful politician can also help shape public opinion and not just be carried away by uh, mob, mob mentality with torches and pitchforks. Um, and you were saying about um, we have to weigh up the relative risk versus the, the reward of having the sharks in the ocean. So could you explain a bit about why sharks are so important in our ecosystems? Sure. Well, predators help keep food webs in balance in general. Where I'm from, uh, in western Pennsylvania, outside Pittsburgh, a hundred years ago or so, we had wolves. And we killed all the wolves because wolves are scary and who wants wolves in your backyard? Now there's too many deer. And the deer cause tens of millions of dollars of property damage. Uh, and they spread diseases like Lyme disease because there's so many of them and they're malnourished and they then go into places they wouldn't ordinarily go, like people's yards. Uh, and their deer numbers are out of control and it spreads diseases to other, other woodland critters as well as to humans. Uh, it's a big problem and predators prevent that. The same sort of thing can happen in the ocean. Uh, there's a re some really cool studies done in Shark Bay, uh, not far from, uh, from you, uh, that showed sharks actually do something or have effects that are called fear ecology. That, uh, which I think is some of the coolest stuff in behavioral ecology today. If you've ever uh, been walking home from the pub 
and maybe gone the long way around uh, to get back to your car or to get home uh, to avoid going through a, a shortcut that's not a very a poorly lit alley or something because it looks kind of unsafe. That's the same type of effect. Uh, there are herbivores like dugongs or like, or like dolphins uh, or uh, some other, or, or mesopredators like dolphins or some other species uh, that will avoid a good area to forage because there are sharks there. So they will stay in a place to, for their eating that's less good access to resources for them because they're avoiding sharks. And when you lose that fear ecology effect, suddenly all the dugongs have this massive new area of seagrass to feed on and they can uproot an entire ecosystem pretty quickly. Uh, so the fear ecology effects can also be very important. But in general, predators help keep a food web in balance. I was actually just in Shark Bay over Christmas. So it's oh, nice. funny that you mentioned that. Yeah, it was, it was incredible. And um, honestly, one of the most thriving ecosystems I have seen underwater for a long time. We did a couple of free dives and there were just massive um, coral trout or coral groupers, which were over a meter in length. You know, we wow. um, a Queensland groper, which grew up to be the size of like a little car. So my, yeah. my partner actually saw one of those and came up on the boat and was like, it was the size of a small car. Like, it was, it was crazy um, to see that there's still areas in the world which are really thriving. And we did see yeah. some species of sharks there as well, which is great. Um, one thing that we did kind of want to ask is, uh, why is there such a focus on protecting sharks when there seems to be a lesser focus on protecting other fish species like tuna and everything when those yeah. are targeted and overfished. Um, I, I understand like protecting predators is important for the balance, but what if that, you know, those fish that they prey upon are gone? Doesn't that yeah. thing out of whack? <laughs> yeah, humans are messing up the ecosystem in a lot of different ways, uh, to put it mildly. I don't have to tell uh, you that in Australia right now. I hope uh, everyone everyone uh, in your group is safe. Uh, the imagery coming out of there is just horrifying. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we're, humans are affecting the ecosystem in a lot of different ways. So a lot of these uh, food web disruption models that focus just on removing the sharks don't make any sense because we're also knocking out the tuna and we're also knocking out the grouper and we're also knocking out the snapper and we're also knocking out the seagrass. Uh, but sharks in, in some systems are disproportionately ecologically important relative to their biomass and numbers. But certainly that doesn't mean that other things aren't. Uh, why do they get more attention than others? Uh, people, everyone knows what a shark is. Like even with dealing with, dealing with me a minute ago, you, you explained to me what a coral grouper is. You don't have to do that when you say sharks, when you speak to any audience. People know what it is. And that can, uh, that can be a way in for talking about ocean conservation. There's this concept in conservation biology called umbrella species. Uh, and a classic example of that in North America is the grizzly bear. That people love grizzly bears. They love the idea of wild grizzly bears. Uh, and we, in order to protect enough space for a wild grizzly bear to roam, you also protect a lot of other species along the way. You just can't do it any other way. So by a lot of the advocacy focuses on protecting the grizzly bear because by doing that, you'll also protect all these other things. Uh, and that's been the case in some places in the shark conservation world. 
But in some cases, yeah, there's some advocacy focusing exclusively on sharks is weird uh, because it, it that, this is my issue with focusing exclusively on fins because uh, that's that's not an issue facing the groupers and the tunas. But overfishing for me is. So if you focus only on one small part of the problem where the solution is very different from the other part of the problem, that's not great. Very well put in terms of the grizzly bear, I think also similar to the wolves, which we mm -hmm. saw evidence when they were reintroduced back into the areas, the whole population thrived. Yep. I forgot which park that was in. Yellowstone is the classic example of that one. Yes. Uh, but it's been done in a lot of places. But uh, the, the textbook examples for wolf reintroduction are Yellowstone usually. Uh, and I, I have, I've never gotten to see them. That's on my, that's a bucket lister for me. Definitely. I, I'm yet to see wolves as well, but luckily I get to see sharks all the time. <laughs> yep. Um, in terms of fishing, we've already discussed overfishing in terms of the commercial aspects. But what are your thoughts on recreational fishing. When I was in Florida, I saw massive signs, or was it Bahamas, where massive signs like don't, there's no shark fishing on this pier. And I remember being yeah. taught that people would fish sharks. And when oh, yeah. I spoke to some of the fishermen, they were like, oh, don't worry, it's catch and release. Um, yeah, so that was a big part of my PhD work in Florida, uh, that people for years were just sort of ignoring this as a problem. Uh, that, oh, don't even worry about recreational fishing for sharks. Commercial fishing for sharks and bycatch is so much of a bigger issue that recreational just doesn't matter. And the laws sort of reflected that idea. And it's not true. Uh, for some, particularly for, partic for already stressed population, recreational fishing can do a lot of damage. Uh, and the reason for that is there's just so many people doing it. Uh, and also there are so many there are lots of species for which commercial fishing is already banned, but it's still legal to fish for as a recreational angler. Uh, another big issue with that is that they say, yes, it's catch and release, but a lot of the common fishing practices kill sharks. Uh, and so it's not release, it's dumping a body. Uh, there, the, in Florida, there were all these examples that how this first came to my attention, which there was these examples on the news of people, and the news story was not look at this horrible animal abuse that kills a protected species, but look at this cool fish someone caught in our town. Wow, cool, this person's awesome. And they show a person wrestling a hammerhead shark to death on a beach. And they let everyone who wants to come take a picture with it. And they let everyone who wants to come touch it. And then they say, okay, well now it's time to release it, it's dead. And the next morning, a hammerhead shark of that size washes up on the beach. And the angler always says, oh, that's not me, that's another hammerhead. So this, there was a big, uh, so we did a lot of surveys of anglers and I did a big analysis of a, a bulletin board online discussion forum used by the shark angling community. And we found that the problem is very widespread. Uh, a lot of these anglers are willfully breaking the law, meaning they understand what the law is and are consciously saying, I'm not going to follow that. Uh, and the, based on the, that work and uh, some on the ground advocacy by some colleagues of mine, we were able to get the fishing laws in Florida changed last year. Uh, as of July last year, it's illegal to, do, to remove a hammerhead from the water for any amount of time. Uh, an issue with hammerheads is they are just incredibly fragile. Um, there are some species of sharks that are not, and I have a crazy example of a nurse shark in a minute, but. 
hammerheads if they fight on a fishing line reeling a man and fighting uh, for more than like 40 minutes they're gonna die and then you talk to you learn that and you talk to these anglers and they say oh we heard hammerheads are fragile so we made sure to keep it a short fight time of only two hours like we you killed that shark and they say, oh, no, it's okay. I've been doing it this way for 30 years. Like, okay, you've been killing everyone sharks for 30 years. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, there are uh, hotheads in that community, macho cowboy buffoons, uh, that do not represent the angling community as a whole very well. Most anglers in Florida is the recreational fishing capital of the world. It's vitally important to the culture as well as the economy. And most anglers are very conservation-minded and welfare-minded and don't want to hurt the animals. But then you get into these the, the anglers targeting the biggest sharks. What you're talking about is the difference in mindset between going deer hunting in the woods behind your house and traveling halfway around the world to hunt the last rhino. Uh, it's just a trophy hunter mentality. And the most important thing is a photograph of you posing with the animal that you and. Yeah, to, the hammerheads are very poor targets for catch and release. And the latest IUCN red list assessment numbers came out a few weeks ago. They're now critically endangered. Yeah. Uh, the, but not all sharks are that fragile. Nurse sharks, uh, there a, was a crazy story when I lived in Florida where some guy caught a nurse shark, uh, threw it in the back of his pickup truck, drove it to a grocery store, put it on the parking lot of the grocery store. And this is in Florida where it's friggin' hot. And it was there for like half an hour before so he was trying to sell it to just random people in the grocery store parking lot. No one, no one wants it. Uh, and then someone called the police and they made him put the shark back in the water. It survived and swam off fine. Uh, after being out of the water and driven on the highway and put on a Florida, Florida asphalt. Uh, but hammerheads can't do that. So recreational fishing, in short, deserves much more research and advocacy and management attention than it has received. And all the people that told me I shouldn't even bother looking at it were wrong. I don't know. I just seeing how many people fish out here, I think it's an important thing to talk about because every fisherman or spear fisherman I've talked to, they're like, "Oh, well, it's just me. You know, it's just me and my rod, yeah. and my gun." Um, yeah, and five million of your closest friends that weekend. Exactly. Like yeah. Australia, it's a massive industry as well. And as you said, very important to the economy and the culture. Um, but even, you know, even my good friends that, um, you know, did their diving instructor courses in the same shop as I did, I've seen on Facebook of them posing with sharks. Yeah. And it is one of the most common uh, profile images on Tinder in Florida is a guy posing with a shark they caught. I, it was like one of the top five or something. Well, at least that's an easy like way to just swipe them no. If yes. <laughs> uh, I actually, I remember back when I used Tinder, some guy had a shark and I swiped right just to tell him off, just to be like, why yeah. are you posing with a shark? <laughs> and I remember writing to him something like, oh, I hope you like put, put the shark back in the ocean and you know, being the macho man he was, he, he replied something like, oh no, I cut it off and ate it. It's like, well, yeah. props to Great. you guys. <laughs> really representing um, that niche quite well, I think. <laughs>
Um, Some folks uh, make it very easy to tell who they are. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I, I would love to hear if there's any more research um, happening in this kind of area because I do think it's very valuable. Yeah. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, several of the faculty jobs I've applied to have been the, the projects we'll be focusing on continuing that work for the rest of the United States and eventually the rest of the world. But there was some work done by, excuse me, uh, Peter Kine at Darwin University. Um, I think it's Darwin University. He I know he lives in Darwin, but on recreational fishing for uh, the critically endangered uh, glyphus sharks that you have up in the, the uh, Northern Territory. Uh, they're weird freshwater sharks. They're crazy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but they're, they're cr another critically endangered species and they're targeted by anglers up there and he did uh, some cool work with them. Fair enough. Now, down, down where I am in, um, in WAM, I'm north of Nagalu Reef and predominantly here we see a lot of white tip reef sharks, a lot mm -hmm. of lemon sharks, um, and a couple of gray reef sharks um, mm -hmm. so far. I'm, I'm still you know, waiting to see a bull shark or a tiger shark show up one day. Yeah. <laughs> I spent a, a semester at James Cook in Townsville, but I never made it out to what, to WA, and I regret that. It's, it's truly the Wild West out here. Yeah, Ningaloo is supposed to be spectacular. Yeah, it is. Um, we were down there a couple months ago, and it was just in the water for five minutes, and there was already a manta ray cruised past the dolphin. Oh, wow. Check us out. Crazy. It's really um, untouched here because there's hardly anyone in Western Australia, which is crazy. Like the, the state is, you know, basically the size of half of Australia and there's 2.8 million people living here. Yeah. <laughs> so, I feel like on Mars or something. Um, An interesting ecosystem. Definitely. Very, very different, um, especially due to the currents, how they move. Um, we get a lot of diversity and a lot of species I've never seen before. Some really bizarre looking, I think it might have been a shark or a fish. I'm not sure. Um, I'm going to have to still identify it. It's like hmm? hiding underneath the rock, kind of looked like a wobby gong, but more. Oh, cool. I'm not sure. Never seen anything like it. Anyway, before uh, we <laughs> just yeah. start talking about diving and everything, um, <laughs> I did want to ask a little bit about your opinion with like the hysteria associated with shark bites and uh, how can people kind of best protect themselves whether they're scuba diving or free diving or surfing like what advice do you have as someone studying yeah so in general if you at all feel not safe maybe get out of the water mm -hmm. if you're not sure if you feel iffy at all Trust your gut on that. It's probably fine, but don't don't mess with it. Uh, the shark bites are again just an incredibly uh, rare phenomenon and dangerous, or severe shark bites even more so. But most of, of the tiny, tiny portion of people who are bitten by sharks, most of them are far from shore by themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, often, sur often it's surfers or people out for a long swim. People who are close to shore with a big group. Are much less likely to be bitten because that can startle away sharks. Uh, there are a lot, there's a lot of weird advice out there like don't wear yellow is a strange one. That's not anything. 
Uh, they call it yum yum yellow. That was a big thing in like Florida urban legend community. That's not a thing. Uh, there are some people say don't wear shiny jewelry because it can look like scales reflecting in the water. Uh, that's good advice for avoiding barracuda. I don't know if it's it, how much it affects sharks. Uh, one of the dumbest pieces of advice that will surely get people hurt uh, but gets widely circulated is if you see dolphins feeding, you're safe because sharks are afraid of dolphins. It's nonsense. Sharks and dolphins eat the same stuff. There's almost certainly sharks feeding right under them. Uh, there's a lot of really weird advice out there, but and there's a lot of people trying to sell you very expensive products that will keep you safer. Uh, someone was bitten by wearing one of those earlier this year, or a couple of years ago, maybe. Uh, these are based on, in some cases, misunderstandings of the science. In some cases, they're a fraudulent level misunderstanding of the science. Uh, you don't need that. If it makes you feel better, that fine, but you don't, you don't need one of those uh, $1,000 devices that will repel sharks. Because first of all, they don't always work reliably. Some of them work sometimes under certain conditions for some species is the best thing that can be said for these at the moment. Uh, and they're very expensive. They are. Um, in, in WMA, a lot of the dive shops here, it's actually, um, if you're an instructor, you have to have one. So it's really? one of, uh, I know when I was in Bustleton, on the Bustleton jetty, I was talking to one of the instructors and she was carrying the shark repellent device. And I asked her about it and she was like, yeah, it's a protocol um, that the oh. dive shops instill in themselves that every group, so one guy has this, shark repellent device attached to them? So those work at a distance of like that. Okay, so. So one per group is not gonna do much. <laughs> but if, it, again, yeah, you just don't, you don't need it. Uh, some of these groups are, are, are just outright fraud. Some of them have done clinical tests that show that they work sometimes. Uh, but there's just a lot of overhyped fear, which is not to say that there's no risk, but going to the beach is a, it, you have bigger risks from driving there uh, or from heat stroke or dehydration or skin cancer or drowning. Uh, and the more people die from all of those things and you don't hear about mandatory changes in protocol because of that. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I want to be clear with all of this, that there, there are people who like mock the idea of a, someone dying from an unlikely cause. Don't, don't do that. That doesn't work. Any human injury, any human death is tragic. I regret any loss of life resulting from any of this. But if someone, a very rare event happening should not mean that no one can enjoy the ocean. And it shouldn't mean that we destroy the, the, the delicate food web balance that's so vital for the food security and employment of millions. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, have you heard about um, a couple of years ago, there was a big movement in the shark repellent wetsuits where they're made out of black and white stripes to like break up your silhouette in the water or something like that. Um, what is your opinion on those ones? A lot of, you don't, you just don't need it. I, I don't think there, I don't think they ever tested if that worked, um, if any sort of clinical trials. I, I believe that it might work sometimes under some conditions, but probably not. Uh, those wetsuits do look pretty cool. Uh, the one that I had growing up was purple because it was the cheapest one at the dive shop. 
So I, I am jealous of any stylish wetsuit, but that's, yeah, that's not, I mean, most of the bites happen uh, from surfers where you, their wetsuit isn't even in the friggin' water when it happens and it's invisible under the, the what the, what the shark sees is the board. Yeah. Uh, there's been some effort to make boards that look like that too, but from underneath the board looks black because yeah. it's blocking out the sun. So there, there's a lot of goofy stuff in this space. Some of it is well-intentioned, but not based on science. Some of it is outright fraudulent. Uh, and it's just, I was just joking about this today with uh, this Netflix special with Gwyneth Paltrow's uh, goof nonsense. Uh, that's pseudoscientific products that, uh, oh, I, I was just joking that I could make a lot of money if I didn't care about committing fraud. I could sell magic crystal stickers that you could put on your wetsuit that would make you make it very unlikely that sharks would bite you, which was also true if you don't use them. Uh, but yeah, there's a, there's a, this, this space uh, is likely to have a lot of lawsuits in the coming future. So I have arrangements in place uh, for to, in case I have to be an expert witness about, yes, lots of people said in advance that this is nonsense. Yeah. Uh, hope it doesn't come to that because if it comes to that, it means someone got hurt while using one of these safety products. But yeah, it's a it's a very strange industry. Yeah, Indeed. there's a great uh, Simpsons special with I think it was Lisa was trying to was joking about the tiger repellent rocks. Oh yeah. Uh, and and uh, Homer said, "Wow, this is working amazing. I haven't seen any tigers around here. They live in the Midwestern U.S." <laughs> uh, that's that's sort of the mindset of some of these products. Uh, yeah, definitely. And even you know, even if you do see a shark, I think people you hear shark and you associate it with the great white or the tiger shark or the bull shark. But in reality, yeah. how many species of sharks out there? According to the latest sharks of the world, that's going to be coming out in a couple months. We're at five fifty ish. Uh, the last count there were the last published count there were five hundred thirteen. My favorite of the newly discovered ones, I was just talking about this today on Twitter, uh, was the Ninja Lantern Shark, uh, which was that, that name was named by the scientist's young cousin at a family dinner. She was saying, I, I have this cool new species that I'm describing, I need a name for it. And her young cousin was like, ninjas are awesome. Let's do ninjas. And it doesn't make any sense for the context of the shark, but it's awesome because they're like little Oh, we're going to have to look that one up now, ninja. Oh yeah, Ninja, ninja Lantern Shark. They're great. But that's another great way to get people interested in your sharks, name them cool things. <laughs> yeah. All right, fantastic. Before we finish off, I just wanted to ask you the question I ask all my guests, which is what would sure. be the one piece of advice you would give to people who want to help the ocean, whether it's sharks or the ocean in general? So this is something that I talk about a lot on social media, uh, is that people who try to help and do harm uh, so not doing that, uh, and I'll elaborate a little more, but in general, if anyone wants to uh, track me down on social media, I'm Why Sharks Matter, all one word, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, there are a lot of people who want to help the ocean, and that's great, but a lot of the stuff that can be done to help the ocean is very technical. Uh, it's, a, it's a complex scientific problem in many cases, So, the, but the sort of things that individuals can do other than elect and support politicians who support the environment uh, is eat sustainable seafood and don't eat unsustainable seafood. I don't encourage everyone to go vegan, though if that's your choice, you're welcome to. 
Uh, just don't eat unsustainable seafood if you can avoid it, but don't be a jerk about it at a restaurant or a family dinner. That doesn't help anyone. Uh, donate time or money to research or to reputable environmental nonprofits. Uh, learn the facts from actual reliable sources and don't share inflammatory, scary sounding nonsense that you find on social media. Uh, share accurate information and don't share inaccurate information. And if you're not sure if it's accurate or not, check with experts. Social media has made that easier than ever before in human history. And you probably won't even need to ask. In the big news of the day, one of us is already talking about it on Twitter, either yes, this is real or no, this is not. A big part of what I have to do with this sort of myth busting in public education is correcting viral misinformation about from well-intentioned, environmentally-minded folks. Uh, there's a lot of wrong nonsense about how to help sharks that's out there. And I love that people want to help, but you know, some of you, you're, if you don't understand the science behind the threats, and if you don't understand the laws behind the solutions, you are unlikely to be able to be the leader in the movement to help. But that doesn't mean you can't help. It means you can't be the president of the WA Save the Sharks Club. Instead, maybe volunteer to help a, a larger successful organization that just needs volunteer labor guided by an expert. And people, particularly our generation, don't want to hear that. They want to go out there and they want to fix it. And they want to be in charge and they want to be the leader. But it takes a really long time to learn how to do this in a way that's useful. Um, and something that I say a lot uh, is thinking outside of the box is great, but it's more effective if you know where the borders of the box are and why they're there. Uh, there no, no complex global solution uh, or no, there's not going to be a solution to a complex global problem that comes from a non-expert looking, thinking about it for two minutes and going with the first thing that pops into their head. There are trained professionals with years and years of experience and advanced training working on this, and they need your help. They don't need you to guess how to, how to solve the problem. Thank you so much for that. That was uh, very well put. Um, and as we mentioned already, you can be found on Twitter, Facebook, all the places with why sharks matter. Um, and I'll be including all the links to all the things we talked about in the show notes Great. as usual. Um, and yeah, I would love to, to hear more about the ocean science communication in Florida. Uh, when, mm -hmm. when is that happening? Just to kind of- So there are two classes of that. One is in mid-March and one is in early June. And we'll probably do it again in the future, but it's a week-long course. Uh, it's uh, through field school, getintothefield.com, uh, and it will, participants will help with my ongoing shark research projects and help with ongoing coral reef restoration work in Florida. Uh, we'll learn from local experts, uh, and we'll also learn the principles of public science engagement for the ocean. Uh, you'll learn how to write or edit a press release. You'll learn how to run a science blog, how to, how to use Twitter, uh, how to craft your message for non-expert audiences, things like that. Um, and it should be a, should be a blast. And living on living on a research vessel in uh, downtown Miami. That sounds great. Uh, I wish I could make it. That'd be that'd be a fun time. Kind of far for you, sadly. It is. I am going to be in the U.S. I think in in July though, so mm -hmm. just missing it by month. <laughs> All right, but thank you so much for uh, being here with me today, and uh, I look forward to seeing the research you get up to and any updates that you have in the field. Thanks for having me.
again, thank you so much for joining me here today, David. I learned so much from you and it was an absolute pleasure to be able to chat to a real expert in the shark field, someone who has been working with sharks and studying these incredible creatures. I hope people learned something and they enjoyed this episode. And of course, if you want to check out any of the things that we talked about during this podcast, it's all going to be in the show notes. So head on over to oceanpancakepodcast.com. And yeah, join the family, join the tribe, and I'll see you guys in next week's episode.